Would you pray with me? Father, we confess our great need of you. That the, the fact that our hearts kept beating and our, our lungs kept breathing in and out all night long as we slept is just another evidence of your kindness to us. And so if we have breath in our lungs today, we want to offer it back to you. Would you meet us where we are in our place of need and weakness and dependence? Speak to us through your word that we might be encouraged and built up according to how you've made us. Work in us now by your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Good morning and welcome. Uh, it's been an odd week. Uh, Sunday after, I, after the second service, I, I sat down and, and I was just, man, my voice was tired and kind of been fighting a cold. It's been running its way through my house. And um, when you have a bunch of kids in your house, you just literally just share germs with each other and so everyone gets sick. And um, uh, by the end of the day Sunday, I had no voice. And so uh, not, no, not sure exactly how the week was going to progress. I thought this Sunday might be a lesson in how to listen to a whispering sermon. I don't know. Um, but by God's grace, uh, I'm feeling better. It still is a little scratchy. So if my voice cuts out a few times, um, uh, bear with us. I'll just drink my coffee and we'll be good. Um, but we've been praying as we do regularly, as we do weekly, when we get together as a staff and as a team, and we, we talk about where we're going in the text, and, and we pray for you and for us. Um, and we pray for this time together, that our hearts would be ready to worship, because God alone is worthy, that we would be ready to receive all that God has for us from his word as we gather. With that, if you need a Bible, you want to slip your hand up, someone from our strike team, um, Reese or Sarah can, can put one in your hands. Um, you can take this with you. If you do not have a Bible, please take one with you. We're continuing our series called What We Believe. We're outlining some of our core beliefs and practices as a church and looking at the scriptures that inform them and shape those practices. Today we're looking at a, a theological idea, the doctrine of the Imago Dei, the image of God imprinted on humanity. We want to look at the beauty and brilliance of God's design, both in <clears throat> unity, man and woman, male and female, as image bearers, and in their unique distinctiveness. We also want to outline how both the unity and the diversity in the image of God, in male and female, how they complement one another in the home and in the church. Now, I know my task today takes us into some potentially charged topics dealing with things like God's design and gender and roles in marriage and in the church. And like other topics in this series, we want to be both clear in our, our biblically rooted convictions and we want to be humble in the way we communicate those convictions. Because, this is our big idea for the day, we believe that God has a beautiful and intentional design for male and female as equally bearing the image of God and that God has a beautiful and intentional design in their complementary roles in the life of the home and the church. I'll read that again. God has a beautiful and intentional design for male and female as equally bearing the image of God and a beautiful and intentional design in their complementary roles in the life of the home 
and the church. We don't want to miss the beauty of God's design and in distinction. With that, let's jump in. Uh, we are a member of uh, a member church in the Acts 29 Church Planting Network. So along with our own uh, statement of beliefs and convictions, we adhere, along with the member churches in our network, to a set of distinctives. Uh, part of that, uh, one of those distinctives speaks to both the equality and distinctions of men and women. The statement reads like this. It'll be multi-slides on the screen. I invite you to follow along. We are deeply committed. This is the statement of the distinctive. We are deeply committed to the fundamental spiritual and moral equality of male and female and to men as responsible servant leaders in the home and in the church. Now, it's broken up into sub-paragraphs. We'll go through them here one at a time. Paragraph one, both men and women are together created in the divine image and are therefore equal before God as persons, possessing the same moral dignity and value and have equal access to God through faith in Christ. Men and women are together the recipients of spiritual gifts designed to empower them for ministry in the local church and beyond. Therefore, women are to be encouraged, equipped, and empowered to utilize their gifting in ministry in service to the body of Christ and through teaching in ways that are consistent with the word of God. Paragraph 2. Both husbands and wives are responsible to God for spiritual nurture and vitality in the home. But God has given to the man primary responsibility to lead his wife and family in accordance with the servant leadership and sacrificial love characterized by Jesus Christ. This principle of male headship should not be confused with nor give any hint of domineering control. Rather, it's to be loving, tender, and nurturing care of a godly man who is himself under the kind and gentle authority of Jesus Christ. The final paragraph reads like this, The elders, pastors of each local church have been granted authority under the headship of Jesus Christ to provide oversight, to teach and preach the word of God in corporate assembly, like this, for the building up of the body. The office of pastor elder is restricted to men. There's some verses there that kind of frame out how we understand these ideas. And we're going to use that statement as an outline for our time this morning. First, looking at the Imago Dei, the image of God imprinted on humanity, both male and female. And we're going to spend a good deal of time there as the foundation of our understanding. And then we'll look at how God's design in our distinctions are lived out as men and women, set forth in creation and made new in the gospel, and how this good design in distinction is designed by God for his glory, acknowledging and honoring the one who made us, and for our good, that we might flourish and grow. Specifically, how this design and distinction is lived out in the home and in the church. So first, let's look at the Imago Dei. Imago Dei is just a, a Latin phrase that translates image of God. We get this phrase from places like Genesis chapter 1. You can turn there now if you'd like. It's the beginning of your Bibles. Genesis chapter 1 is the account of creation. From nothing, God is speaking into existence everything that is. And there's a process and a pattern. First light, then the separation of the waters and the expanse of the sky and the heavens, and then the formation of land and vegetation, the sun and the moon and the stars, 
Then fish and birds and other animals. And at the end of creation of the animals, God creates something unique. Let's read it together. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. And God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man... In his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What Imago Day means, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. When we talked about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, we see here this conversation amongst the persons. God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Man here is just the general term for humanity or mankind. It's where we get the the name Adam in the Hebrew. You can read it this way. God created mankind, humans, in his own image. Male and female, he created them. Now, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? There's many things I think it can mean. I'm just going to highlight three facets, three parts of what I think it means to be made in the image of God. First, that, that humans are created unique. Among all creation, God made humans unique. While all of creation was created by God, only humans were created in his image and likeness. If you look ahead to Genesis chapter 2 in the more detailed unfolding of the creation of man and woman, we see that God formed man from the dust of the ground like all the other creatures, but with one key distinction. With Adam, it says God breathed life into Adam. It's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. He has uniquely breathed life into into humanity. Two, Character. It also means that unique among creation, God shares with humanity and not any other part of creation in the same way some aspects of his character that are unique. While God alone is is infinite and all-powerful and all-knowing, some of his moral attributes are shared with humanity in a sense. Now, God alone is perfectly wise and perfectly loving, and perfectly just, and good. And he has empowered us, made in his image and likeness, to exercise wisdom, and love, and justice. Now our wisdom and love is not identical to the wisdom and love of God, but because we bear his image, there is a manner in which we possess and express these same attributes. And third, Part of what it means to be made in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, is reflected in how his design of us works itself out, in how we live in how he's created us, and how we live according to his design. Look at Genesis 1.28. There's a command given to humanity. God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Together, man and woman are given the command to multiply, 
to subdue, to steward, to have dominion, to rule over the rest of creation. And neither man nor woman alone could fulfill this command. Together, male and female, they more fully image and reflect the image of God. There's uniqueness in this partnership. Man and woman are created to reflect the image of God together, and yet they are male and female. They're not the same and not interchangeable. In verse 15 of Genesis chapter 2, we read that God put Adam, put man in the garden to work it and keep it. As an aside, this is highlighting that work in and of itself is a good thing designed by God for our good before sin entered. So even if you hate your job, some of you are like, I don't know if that's true. You don't know my job. God put Adam in the garden to work and keep it and gave him something to do before the fall. So work did not come with the fall and sin like mosquitoes did. Um, Work is a good thing. It's another sermon. Just kidding. I think mosquitoes were there before. Um, But that's another another sermon. But when God saw that none of the other creatures he had made were suitable helpers, that's an important word, for Adam, he took a rib from Adam's side, and from that rib fashioned for Adam a woman, Eve. And the word here for helper, that one, there was not a suitable helper for Adam amongst the rest of the animals. That word ezer, the connotation of that word is one of strength. See, there is a necessary strength from the helper to bolster the weaknesses of the one being helped. Here is a complementary partnership from the beginning. Verse 24 is also where we get of Genesis chapter 2, our biblical foundation for marriage. Again, that's another sermon. But what we're seeing here is an equality in value and shared worth created in the image of God, male and female. And at the same time, male and female is not interchangeable. God fashioned them unique. And this speaks to two things. One, to the complementary design of male and female. Together and only together can they fulfill the command to multiply and fill the earth. Life Science 101, it is a biological necessity for both male and female contributions to the process of multiplication. I don't need to get any more explicit than that. Two, that this was God's design from the beginning to display the aspects of his own image in the component parts of male and female. Male and female, he created them. So from the beginning, man and woman, male and female, were not interchangeable. Their distinctions, their differences, not unimportant, but sovereignly designed to accurately reflect the image of God that he intended to put on display in humanity. And at the end of Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, we see that after God was done creating man and woman, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, here's the problem. We don't need to read much further, and sin enters and affects every part of creation. 
the picture that I, that I have in my mind is like a fresh oil painting that someone has taken their hands and just run right through the center of it. The image that was carefully crafted is now marred. And that's what sin has done to the image of God in humanity. Genesis 3 tells us that rather than obedience, man and woman both distorted God's commands and disobeyed what God called them to do. And the cost of that disobedience was a curse. So what God designed for fulfilling the earth, for multiplication, childbearing for the woman, would now come with greater pain. What God designed as as the instrument for subduing the earth, to work it and keep it, would now come with weeds and thorns along with fruit. And the relationship designed by God for man and woman to reflect God's image more completely together would now be marked with contention where there was designed by God cooperation. And power struggles would now exist rather than partnership. And thus begins a spiral of confusion and confrontation and domineering and division and abuse and abdication or giving up of responsibility that just circles. These are the results of sin, plain and simple. And in order to properly deal with sin, there needs to be a a gospel answer. So if you would, flip forward in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Some of this will be on the screen as well. Um, Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul to a church that was attempting to maintain their own righteousness, not by living out their new identity now in Christ, but by trying to impose upon one another uh, legalistic law-keeping, holding new believers who weren't even Jewish by heritage to keeping uh, the, the ritualistic Jewish laws. And Paul gets pretty fired up about it, actually. If you read Galatians, if there's a way to yell at someone on paper in the first century Near East, this is what Paul's doing. And here in chapter 3 of Galatians, he starts to unpack how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and therefore... Those of us who live by faith in Christ no longer live under its curse. Look at uh, Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 27. Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. Verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. There's a toppling of social hierarchy in the gospel. The ground in front of the cross of Christ is level ground. Not just male and female, but slave and free, Jew and Gentile. In Christ Jesus, there is a restoration of equality as it relates to our identity in the kingdom. Those who bear the image of God. What was designed as equal in creation was marred by sin, but is remade as equal again in Christ Jesus. And this is possible because the failure of the first Adam is overcome by the perfection of Jesus, the second and better Adam. And Paul tells us in Colossians that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him and that he has reconciled our brokenness 
by his own blood. So now, Christ, in Christ Jesus, we are free to operate and live as we were designed. Free to be our true selves. And this is not an overrealized, self-inflated boost of self-esteem, of being your best you, but a restoration of what was a marred image and a renewal of your God-designed, Christ-redeemed identity as an image-bearer with a purpose and design to flourish. And we want to encourage and foster growth in this, in walking out our new identities in Christ Jesus. Now, I spent a lot of time on this point for a reason. Because I think this is a worldview-shaping theological idea. What I mean by that is this. What we believe about God and His creation of us as human beings, what we believe about sin and its effects, what we believe about redemption shapes so much of the rest of how we understand God's relationship with us and our relationship with one another. I think the root of many issues we face, personally, relationally, one-to-one, and culturally around us as we look around, issues of racism and prejudice, issues of socioeconomic disparities in our own communities, issues of violence and abuse, human trafficking, the sanctity of human life, distortions of human sexuality, brokenness in marriage and in family, all of these brokennesses, these fractures, have roots in how we understand the Imago Dei and the redeeming power of Christ in our God-designed identities. That's why this is important. So, with that, we want to poke into two areas where what we believe about the created order and how it functions in the home and in the church. From the Acts 29 statement, I'll read this again. Both husbands and wives are responsible to God for the spiritual nurture and vitality in the home. But God has given to the man primary responsibility to lead his wife and family in accordance with the servant leadership and sacrificial love characterized by Jesus Christ. This principle of male headship should not be confused with nor give any hint of domineering control. Rather, it's to be loving, tender, and nurturing care of a godly man who is himself under the kind and gentle authority of Jesus Christ. Marriage is indeed a partnership of a husband and a wife. And God's design comes to bear in the home as each person takes responsibility according to their God-designed complementary roles for the purpose of flourishing and growth. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that the role of the husband is sacrificial. Leadership in this capacity is servant leadership as the head of the family. And that the role of the wife is helpful submission is the word Paul uses. What's key here is that these two roles are designed to work together. Headship and submission are not bad words, especially when understood and practiced biblically and humbly by the power of the Holy Spirit. Men in the room, can I speak to you for a second? Not just husbands, but husbands in particular. Now, I'm not saying wives and people who aren't married, like, turn off. You can listen, but I'm speaking to the guys. Faithful headship is marked 
by self-sacrifice, self-denial, and service. And it is not legalistic of me to tell you that. It's going nine miles to serve your wife rather than one mile to serve yourself. It's prioritizing the flourishing of your wife at your own expense. It's driving home tired, taking a breath, asking for fresh help from the Holy Spirit, and then going into the house, look at your wife in the eye, kiss her on the cheek if that's your thing, spend the next few hours maybe engaging with your kids, engaging with their hopes and their dreams, tucking them in, praying with them, praying for them, and then sitting with your wife, listening to her, validating her concerns and sharing your own and going to bed exhausted. Headship is not domineering, but encouraging. Headship does not demand submission. It invites partnership. Headship does not control. It leads and it guides with humility and gentleness. And headship is never abusive. Its goal is always protection. Domineering, demanding, controlling, and abuse is contrary to biblical and godly headship and leadership of husbands in marriages and men in general as they look at the kind of men they desire to be as Christians. Domineering, demanding, controlling, and abuse is contrary to biblical and godly headship, full stop. Now, women in the room, specifically wives, although not just those who are married, recognizing my place as not a woman, but as your pastor, would you allow me to speak to you for a moment? Faithful biblical submission is marked by Self-sacrifice, self-denial, and service. It's marked by humility that is dedicated to partnership. It looks to serve the needs of your husband, not out of duty, but willingly out of compassion, recognizing that he actually does need you. It relies on the strength of the Spirit to under stress and lack of sleep, all the new moms say amen, pray and labor to serve your husband and your family as unto the Lord. Submission is not forgetting oneself and forgetting your individual gifts, but, but instead bringing them to bear in partnership with your husband to complement one another, bringing strength to his weaknesses. Submission is not indentured servitude, but willing and joyful partnership. And it never means just putting up with or dealing with abuse, or neglect in the name of duty. That is not what biblical submission is. God's design for men and for women, specifically in the home, actually flourishes when both husband and wife come to the table humbly and willingly offering what God has given them to the other. And let me be clear, because there's many people in the room who aren't married. Marriage isn't the end goal. It's designed as a specific relationship and as a picture. I think I've said this at every wedding I've ever 
had the privilege of, of serving at, that it's designed, marriage is designed as a picture of the gospel. It's meant to be a tangible example of God's love in Christ Jesus for the church and the church's loving response to her, her husband, her groom. That's what marriage is designed to reflect. So let me ask you, particularly sisters in Christ in the room, if the men in your lives as brothers in Christ and as husbands looked like the type of men that we're talking about here this morning, the type of selfless, strong, and sacrificial men that I'm talking about, that I'm envisioning, would they not be worth following and partnering with? See, this is how we see some of God's good design playing out in the life of the home. And also we want to look at how this plays out in the life of the church. The final paragraph of our Acts 29 statement says this, the elders and pastors of each local church have been granted authority under the headship of Jesus Christ to provide oversight, to teach and preach the word of God in corporate assembly for the building up of the body. The office of pastor, elder and pastor is restricted to men. We use the term elder and pastor here interchangeably at River City. We see this in the New Testament in places like Acts 20 and 1 Peter 5. Typically, for clarity's sake, we'll call vocational staff, paid staff, elders, pastors, and then non-vocational or lay elders, simply elders. The other, the other English word that's used often interchangeably is the word bishop. We don't use that language around here, but if you want to start calling Charlie Bishop Charlie, he'd probably appreciate that. He's not here. I pointed him for a service. He, he prefers the honorable bishop, Charlie Hogstead, but... But we see those words in the New Testament used interchangeably. So we use pastor and elder interchangeably. You can also just call him Charlie. He's cool with that. And we believe that the role of elder in the New Testament is a role, and here's the word that rubs people the wrong way, restricted to men. Paul's instruction in both 1 and 2 Timothy and in Titus outlines that elders show by example what their servant leadership in the church might look like by way of observing their leadership as heads of homes. What might that man look like as an elder in my church? As a shepherd in our church? Well, then we just look to the type of shepherd he is at home. That's the model Paul gives us. The pattern for leadership flowing from the created order is that faithful and godly men would give leadership under Jesus as our, as our leader as the head of the church, that we would serve as elders in local churches. I'm going to quote from Bob Thune in his little book, Gospel Eldership. Our elder team right now is working through it. Um, it will be for us a staple resource as we work new elder candidates through the process of becoming elders at River City. He says this, Men are given the responsibility of headship in the home and in the church, which means that the office of elder pastor is to be filled by men. This is not a matter of empowering men and restricting women, but rather freeing both sexes to enjoy the beautiful, God-glorifying harmony of a robust interdependence. Complementarianism is the theological term for this viewpoint. Men and women are complementary in their God-given design and roles, with men bearing the responsibility for spiritual leadership in the home and in the church. And the responsibilities that we take seriously as elders look like this, like a shepherd to a flock of sheep, to feed the flock, to lead the flock, to protect the flock, to care for the flock, and to set an example for the flock. So the formal teaching and preaching 
as the church gathers, the overall direction and vision and stewardship of our mission together, the guarding of doctrine and theology, the the primary ministry of care and compassion, the, the example, to be an example of those who love the word and live on mission are the responsibility of faithful, godly, called men as elders in the local church. Now the question always arises, so how does this then play out with men and women? What's the role and the shared role in the context of the church? And if we ask the question, well, what can women do? I think that's the wrong question. Author and gifted Bible teacher Mary Cassian writes this. For me, she says, a better question is, do I love what God loves? Am I treasuring Jesus by treasuring his model of headship? Do I uphold and support male headship as a good and beautiful aspect of God's wise plan? Does how I exercise my teaching gift indicate that I value it? And how can I best honor Christ in how and in what context I teach? In broad terms, in books and in conferences and in the church broadly, even here, there's much to benefit the church universal from gifted men and women. I have sisters here in this room right now who I will not call out and embarrass them who have benefited me greatly by speaking truth in a context where we collectively, men and women together, can and should receive it. There's a great book by Tim and Kathy Keller on marriage where both Tim and Kathy contribute and there's much wisdom to be garnered there. By the way, I recommend Tim and Kathy's marriage book, by the way. Has anyone ever read a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield? You should. I'm going to buy you all a copy. Seriously, if you want one, come talk to me. It's fantastic. And here's the contribution of a sister in Christ using the gifts that God's given her to build up the church. And it's phenomenal. So we don't need to shy away from that. And there is here at River City, under this umbrella of elder leadership, a broad base for ministry for men and women in the local church and many, many opportunities for men and women alike to use their God-given gifts of leadership, teaching, shepherding, discipleship, evangelistic drive, encouragement, counseling, hospitality, and more. And our responsibility as elders, according to Ephesians chapter 4, is to equip you to build you up so that you might accomplish and do the work that God's called you to here in the local body according to his good design. 1 Peter 5, the apostle Peter says this. He adds this list of qualifications to elders. He says, I exhort you, the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Close yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the standard that the scriptures have given for eldership, willing oversight, an eagerness to serve, not domineering, but setting an example. Because as Hebrews 13 tells us, that those of us who are called to elders here in a local church, and if you call yourself a member of River City, 
my responsibility, Devin's responsibility, Charlie's responsibility, uh, Berentis is working through our elder process. His responsibility is to keep watch over your soul. And we take that seriously. I'll, call, I'll pull from Bob Thune one more time. He says, specifically to those of you who might be conflicted on the idea of complementarianism and men as elders, he says, I urge you to ponder this question. If the men in our church looked like the men in the Bible, looked like the men that the Bible envisions, looking at those qualifications, would you have any reason not to trust, respect, and affirm their leadership? Not because we're perfect. We all clearly know that I'm not. But because by God's mercy and by His grace, He has called us and equipped us to serve you. Now, there's much here we didn't cover in great depth. I feel like with all of these, we're just like scratching the surface and then like, well, good luck to all the folks. There's much more to cover and we want to continue to make ourselves available to that. We want these to help fuel discussions in your community groups this week to be robust and encouraging and dig into the truths of the scripture and how they play themselves out in real life. Here's just three things that we didn't get to cover that I'm just going to like seed And you can just take with you and I'll let these bug you because they've been bugging me, okay? First, the worldly descriptions of maleness and femaleness won't always conform to social norms, nor will they always conform to biblical example. For example, in my house growing up, my mom did the laundry and that was a good thing. You did not want my dad doing the laundry, just never, ever went well. But who does the laundry is not a mark of maleness or femaleness. It has nothing to do with the biblical expectations of husband and wife or male and female. Zero. It's a social construct. So how can we fight for biblical examples and biblical expectations for ourselves and for one another? Two, godly maleness and femaleness, if you will, operates in singleness, and in godly friendships, not just in marriage. This is a severely underdeveloped area of practical theology in the church in the West and here too. We recognize it. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but there's a whole lot of single people in the room. So they're going, gee, how does my, how God's made me and how I interact with my brothers and sisters in Christ, how do those things work together? godly friendships. We're just bad at it. We're bad at it in the West. We're super connected because everyone's on the Facebook machine and you have the world at your fingertips and yet we're so disconnected. How does God's design for us actually come to bear in the way we relate to one another as brothers and sisters? And three, that this creation order picture, and this is why we started here, why we want to make much of the Imago Dei as the foundation for our conversation and not just talk about complementary roles as a standalone thing, that they're connected together. Because this creation order picture and the redemption of our identities that were once broken by sin can be redeemed in Christ give us a framework to help us actually process and deal with even our own desires that have been fractured with sin along with our creation, the the desires that are misaligned with God's design for us. 
And it's here that we can navigate those challenges and those conversations with grace and with compassion. See, the main hope today is not that you would just download a theological position that our church holds, but that you would see the beauty of God's design, both male and female, as unique image bearers who together more fully reflect the image of God. And how through, even though sin has fractured what God made and called good, through the redemption that comes through Christ Jesus, we can still now live out our God-given identities in relationships to one another, in our service to the local church, with fullness of joy. With that, would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you that you meet us exactly where we are, in our place of need, in our place of weakness. We confess again our need for you and we ask in your mercy that you would awaken dead areas in our hearts, bring conviction of areas where we are pushing against your work in us that we might actually live thriving, not struggling under the the brokenness of of our identities marred by sin, but actually growing and thriving and operating out of the renewal of our identities in and through Christ Jesus. Encourage us now. Meet us as we come to the table together, recognizing it's through Christ that we are made new. It's in his name we pray. Amen.